radical secular podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Visit theradicalsecular.com for our full library of episodes and articles at the Radical Secular blog. Sign up for free access to exclusive content and giveaways. Email us with your comments and suggestions, and follow us on social media. Hello, and welcome back to the Radical Secular. I'm Joe Kipinti. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Sean Prophet. We're going to be doing a two-part show. We have a lot to talk about in this episode. And in this first part, we're going to talk about some big key and consequential science-related developments of our times as it relates to social justice. And in part two, we'll be tackling issues around climate and human refugee crisis. We want to emphasize the importance of paying attention to these developments. And that's why we're doing it as a two-part show. We will be discussing three very related subjects that I have been teaching about as a geographer for more than 20 years. They are very relevant topics today. I'm quite familiar with them. And I thought a discussion would be very helpful to our listeners. As always, here on The Radical Secular, we'll be doing it in a way that emphasizes a need to be ethical. Now, I know that both Christoph and Sean have a lot to say about these issues as well. <laughs> but first, <laughs> yeah, right, guys? For sure. Definitely. Yeah. First, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. I also want to encourage all of you to continue the conversation online. We are very happy to do that. You are welcome to post replies on our Facebook page and on YouTube or any other medium. So you know the routine by now. Let's take a look at those t-shirts. Go ahead, Sean. Well, I have a very simple shirt today. It is a kind of hippie peace freak tie-dye shirt. And this actually came from Jillian made this shirt at a family gathering we had recently. So I'll nice. show it. Very nice. nice. Very, very nice. And basically, this is it's not only the kind of peace and love thing that the style sort of represents, but it's also, if you look at this, it kind of looks like the web of life or kind of chaos theory, the Mandelbrot set, you know, is sort of what, what ends up happening uh, when you do tie-dye. I was inspired to wear it today because, well, it's new, but also because of our topic and, and because it, it's sort of reminiscent of the earth. So mm. that's my shirt. Yeah. Great. Very nice. It, it's Pride Month, right? We're going to talk about that. And I'm wearing my sort of intersectionality, pride, transgender, it, the whole thing, the whole shebang shirt. You got the male, female signs and the trans sort of sign and uh, black power fist or, or uh, a fist in general, the solidarity fist, let's put it that way. And then also the rainbow colors. So I'm actually pretty stoked because we've been inside for so long for like the last year and a half. Like I haven't been able to actually wear a lot of these t-shirts right. out. And so like I have these pile of t-shirts that I love, right? Okay. And and they all make statements. I like making statements. It's the kind of person I am. And I haven't been able to get out and wear them. So the great thing about this show is that it allows me to show off a t-shirt every week, but also I want to wear them out. So I'll just show it off for everybody. Nice. I like it. Very nice. Yes, sir. What about you, Joe? All right. So this show is pretty sober in some ways. I mean, global climate change is an issue is pretty depressing. It can be. I know as an educator, I try to balance that realism, the, the severity of the issue with just trying to be human and optimistic about it. 
because we are all human beings. And so I decided this t-shirt was perfect for this show. I've worn this once before, but I had to mm, do it again. Very <laughs> nice. Happy humanist. We, we will be talking about human populations and we will be talking about the challenges that we are all are facing. And uh, let's try to do this in an as optimistically as possible, even though the subject is extremely serious. Yeah, and I think, Joe, I love that shirt. I, I love humanism, secular humanist, ultimately, right? We are secularists here on this show. And I think yeah. you can't talk about secularism without talking about humanism. And I think that is really important, right? Because we are going to talk about these sort of difficult choices, the difficult concerns that we're facing. And I think we have to yeah. approach them all with that sense of compassion, perhaps, with the idea of reducing human suffering, which is the humanist credo. So I think that's a great shirt, Joe. Oh, thanks. Okay, let's get into the news of the day. It's Pride Month, as Christoph mentioned, and we should celebrate it and also learn from it. That's what it's for. Absolutely. For sure, for sure, guys. And look, I mean, this is the reason, you know, there's always some asshole that comes out and says, like, why don't we have a white pride month? Or we don't need a black pride <laughs> month? Or we don't need a, why don't we have a straight month? And obviously, those are just haters and and not, and naysayers. But I think it's so important for us to celebrate the achievements, explicitly to celebrate the achievements of people who have not been seen, right? That is the whole thing. And I want to talk about Star Trek here briefly. I'll be the first person to jump in on Star Trek today. <laughs> But it's important because in Discovery, right, the entire thing is this obviously non-binary character, this young character, non-binary, and has a partner or a spouse or a significant other, at least, that is literally cannot be seen, right? Like physically right. has not been able to be seen. And that is such an obvious slap you in the face metaphor for what is happening for marginalized folks in general. But right now we're talking about LGBTQ folks. That is what has been, they've been asked, and this is what on the right, they do this all the time. They're like, well, as long as they didn't say anything, as long as they kept their mouth shut, it would all be okay. And again, it's the same thing. Like, don't talk about being black. Don't talk about being gay. Just don't make us feel uncomfortable. And part of Pride Month is literally explicitly making people like that uncomfortable because fuck them. And secondly, it's celebrating the achievements of, L of LGBTQ people. And it's also an opportunity to reflect, right? I need to look about myself and say, holy shit, like I have said homophobic things in the past, right? I didn't take this thing seriously enough for decades. I did not take this issue seriously enough. How am I challenging myself to be better in this way now? And all of that, I think, is wrapped up in these celebrations of these months, et cetera. So that's, I guess that's my yeah. And well, Pride Month for me, it's not just about the LGBT community. I mean, it's like you're saying, although it's very much about celebrating equality and inclusion for that community. But as a straight cis white man, it's also about taking stock of my privilege. And mm. I really want to say something about this concept of privilege in general to a lot of people who are in America's sort of waning majority right now. The idea of recognizing privilege has become somewhat of an anathema. It's right. like, people choke on the word they, as mm. if they were somehow going to have to give up something or someone's asking them to participate in some sort of Maoist struggle session where they have to confess their crimes and be subject to some sort of public ritual <laughs> humiliation. <laughs> and it's like, nothing can be further from the truth. Pride Month is fun, okay? And, mm -hmm. and, and we are who are privileged literally don't have to do anything but reflect and accept and reflect and accept those who are different from us, which we have the easiest job in the world. And 
what recognizing privilege really means though, especially during Pride Month, is to recognize that many of the privileges that I take for granted, such as being able to walk down the street holding hands or putting my arms around the person I love, or just being who I am as a heterosexual cisgendered man, still aren't fully available in our nation to LGBT yeah. folks. And I think you referred to this earlier, Christoph. I saw this video that was making the rounds where a very young gay man, possibly a teenager, who also seems possibly to be a bit gender fluid, Mm. was sort of spouting the conservative line that, you know, we don't need to have a pride month. But during that video, he publicly said the words, I am a gay man. And in a response to that video, there was an older gay man who clearly had gone through some of the civil rights struggles that have brought us to this place where the whole nation is now aware of pride month, if not celebrating it. The older man kind of schooled the younger man as to what it took for the nation to get to that place where yeah. young men could actually say the words, I am a gay man out loud without the risk of punishment or violence. And that's where we are. And we're in danger across the board of forgetting what it took to gain some of these hard won rights and how quickly they could be lost again under a Christian theocracy or a Muslim theocracy or any system that places religion above fundamental human rights. So with that said, I want to recognize the British technology pioneer, Alan Turing. He broke, mm. he broke the German Enigma code. He saved millions of lives and shortened World War II, possibly by years. And Alan Turing was also gay at a time when admitting that was against the law. Sadly, this man who should have been hailed as a global hero was instead subject to the humiliation of chemical castration and committed suicide. So Pride Month is about recognizing this history and also the countless victims of homophobia in the U.S., including the hundreds of thousands of victims of HIV, which was initially mocked by President Reagan and his press secretary, Larry Speaks, as a gay disease. Because yeah. of Republican homophobia under that administration, it took years to get the necessary money for life-saving research into this plague, and countless lives were lost that could have been spared. So it's time to rem remember the high cost of LGBT discrimination and resolve never to let this happen again. And it is happening again with the disgraceful yeah. transgender athletics bans and the bans on medical care. I know you're planning on talking about this later, Joe, in the show. And we know that these bans are going to lead to many lost opportunities and great suffering and even possibly suicide, tragically, among transgender youth. Almost certainly it will. Almost certainly it will. Yeah. Oh, Sean, thank you for saying all those things. You're absolutely right. We need to recognize so much here. And one of the things you said in the beginning was about not going backwards and how we have this threat. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about this in terms of ethics and power mm -hmm. as it relates to these kinds of issues that we're dealing with of great importance to all of us, and particularly progressives who are up front and center trying to keep these uh, social justice issues alive and moving forward. And transgender rights, you know, is right up there. It's the point of the spear mm -hmm. today in terms of social justice challenges, many on the left strongly criticize and even condemn the lack of efforts of the Democrats these days to do the right thing on this issue and many other issues. Compromise is a dirty word here. And I get that, I really do. In principle, if Bill is beating up his girlfriend, Amy, it has to stop, period. No if or buts. The answer isn't for Bill only to beat her up on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that, but no, but yeah, it is, it, but well, that is not the answer, right? <laughs> yeah, the, a compromise there just doesn't cut it. There are issues that have that same urgency, 
to progressive advocates, from social justice to climate change action. Fuck compromising in that sense. Absolutely. Fuck mm. that. However, the problem <laughs> is just because you want something to happen does not mean that it can. The only way to stop all bills from beating up all Amy's is to have the right laws in the books. That takes political power. The only way to push a socially just agenda forward on climate change, action, or anything else in a democracy is to build strong public support for both the issue, and this is critical here, for the politicians who are willing to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Do either of you have examples of what I'm saying here? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I kind of want to discuss something mm -hmm. that I've observed over the years, and that is how difficult it is to make political headway on climate change issues because of the human tendency toward both short-term thinking and bargain hunting. Climate mitigation actions will cost us money in the short term, but they save tons of money in the long term. So both the short-termers and the bargain hunters really don't want to take action. And that's the political coalition that we're fighting against. And we just can't afford to compromise on this because it's literally the future of human civilization. So we know that the number one and number two offenders in the problem of climate change are the fossil fuel industry and the agriculture industry. Energy, including electricity production and transportation, is responsible for about 73% of global emissions. And agriculture, including both farming and animal agriculture, is responsible for about 18%. Hmm. Both those industries produce products that are very personal to people, namely their staple food, which for Americans is meat, and how they get around, which for Americans is mostly oversized trucks. <laughs> These two industries have huge cultural significance beyond just eating and transportation. They've become symbols of personal rights and freedoms, which hands the offending industries a gold-plated culture war issue to poison the concept of climate action as an absolute death threat to the personal freedom of Americans. And it's been recognized for decades that gas prices are a political third rail. It's something that everyone feels immediately in their wallets. Yeah. More than one politician has been defeated after raising the gas tax, and sometimes even raising the gas tax by as little as 10 cents a gallon, which at current prices is about 2 to 3% of the price of gas, has been enough in many cases to see politicians lose elections. So imagine raising it a dollar a gallon or more, which is what needs to happen to drive people into more efficient vehicles and better behaviors, which will help stabilize the climate. Same thing goes for meat. The Republicans are already screaming that Democrats want to take away people's hamburgers. So right there, even without considering industry lobbying, you've got a perfect explanation for why Republicans won't touch the issue. The bottom line is that we've got to tackle emissions from these two industries if we have any hope of keeping global temperature rise under two degrees. Yeah, that's a great point, John. And what you mentioned really made me think of I don't know, like a year ago or whatever, we wrote an article together about, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but the bottom line is part of the thrust of the article was, or one of the uh, ideas in the article was Bush one coming out and saying the American way of life is not is not for sale. Non-negotiable. Yeah. Non-negotiable. And that's the trucks and the beef and the driving rather than using public transportation. All of these things are like meshed in this sort of specific idea of what it means to be an American. And it is ripe for the folks that want to use these as a cultural issue wedge. So in terms of power in particular, I just, and you say this a lot, Sean, and I think I first heard this from you is, is that the left does not understand power, right? We don't right. understand 
And, and we're going to talk about that later on. I am uh, coining this idea of of post-liberalism, right? Because I agree with leftists and lefties on outcomes, but frequently not on means. And the biggest issue is the fucking purity ethics. This idea that the individual who gets something done has to live up to this unbelievably high standard of goodness. So you couldn't ever take it a corporate donation or you're a corporate dem, right? Mm-hmm. And and we, we can't, we everything has to be these sort of big, radical, big changes. Incremental stuff, don't be an incrementalist moderate. And it's mm-hmm. like, who cares how the sausage gets fucking made? We're talking about life here. And to your point, Joe, it's like we're dealing with this right now with the current Congress that we have. We have all three branches of government. We still can't get things done. So we just sometimes we have to be OK with taking the short term win and come back tomorrow to fight another day rather than throwing our towel and said, oh, fuck these people. They are a bunch of corporate den and running, stomping out of the room. Right. And that is what kind of stuff that drives me fucking nuts on the left. And again, it's this fundamental misunderstanding of power. And they're like, oh, yeah. look, we have all three branches of government. Why don't we just push everything through? Well, power. Yeah. Yeah. And really, of course, the climate is Bill abusing Amy, like the humans Mm -hmm. are Bill and the earth is Amy. We need to stop the abuse now. We know that our lives depend on it. And yet, all right, when Bush said that the American way of life is non-negotiable, that was at the first summit. That was more than 25 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so he kicked off, he poisoned already at the outset of the earth summit when we first started to tackle this issue, poisoned the well to basically say to pit the American public against the climate. And so we may have to compromise even on things that we don't want to, even if we know that it's going to cause us huge like delays. We can't afford delays, and yet we may have to deal with delays. So this is what makes it such a tough issue. Yeah. We have to deal with two projects at once. Mm -hmm. Going back to getting back to Bill, stopping Bill's abuse of Amy and gaining the power to stop all abuse. The Mm. very painful truth is that anyone wishing to pursue change and push any ethical agenda must consider power in the equation. And that means at times compromising even core principles. And that sucks. It really does. It hurts. Yeah. But let's not fly off the willy-nilly into the pursuit of power itself. There are Mm -hmm. crucial limits. And there has to be, if one's principles are founded on a strong ethical base, as all of us here are, and all our viewers as well. I, and I hope all of you, will never accept the fact that any abuse by Bill towards Amy is ever acceptable under any circumstance. That has to be how we think and act about it first. In other words, our guiding principle. Mm. And if you think about it, the right has been involved in, in the business of power for decades. That is how they were able to take the emerging social democracy that was born out of the Great Depression and reshape it into what it is today, a debased neoliberal hellscape. This current all-truth environment is not incidental. And we've talked about this many times. It is precisely that route to power that has allowed the right to gather and consolidate its base and take control of state houses and the courts and in so many other places, not to mention the bad presidents we've had, particularly Trump, Mm -hmm. senators, and representatives. But look what it's done to conservatives. The pursuit has shredded many of their own guiding principles. It is a salient example of how the pure pursuit of power is totalitarianism, Mm -hmm. a killer of ethics and beliefs of any kind. 
One of the most startling quotes I've ever read about this is from Hannah Arendt. It speaks the starkest truth there is to power. Quote, in politics, obedience and support are the same. <laughs> and that's at the heart of why power must always be checked, even within ourselves. And Christoph, you talk about this very eloquently. It's a bone-chilling truth. Power ultimately has one agenda, itself. Arendt speaks most eloquently to this nature of power. It is not violence, for example. But violence is an instrument of power. In fact, the greater the totality of control, the less violence is required. The greatest instrument of power is mind control, either through mm -hmm. fear or devotion. We see this in cults. Why? Because power is ultimately about the masses. The more support a cause or a leader has, the more powerful he or the cause becomes. For this reason, we should not fear power, but we must understand power. Power is the electricity in the machine, whatever that machine may be, an executioner's chair or an incubator that keeps preemies alive. The ethics that define that machine matter greatly, but so does how the electrons that run through it. And yet, even an electric chair can overload and destroy itself. Simply put, you make sure to create good machines for the pursuit of justice with plenty of transistors, <laughs> meaning checks and balances. In short, ethics come first, but yet power though dangerous is the way to get those ethics done. This creates a very messy and sometimes maddening political reality. We have to deal with that. How do we do it, guys? I know both of you speak a lot about this. Well, I have to say, I like your electricity analogy because I studied electrical engineering and systems are how we do this. Mm -hmm. Feedback, checks and balances. Without feedback, you wouldn't have your phone, you wouldn't have anything, you wouldn't have a car, nothing works without feedback. So, and our political system doesn't either. And so that has a lot to do, unchecked power. And of course, this is what we talk about a lot on this show is yeah. unearned hierarchy and unchecked power. And so I wanna say though, this has always been a tough road for the left. Yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with what a lot of people on the left believe, which is don't become what you hate. And a lot of lefties really hate the idea of power because they've seen it being abused. Right. And a lot of ways they're right. I mean, unaccountable power is an extremely destructive weapon, as you described. It's a rare human being who can handle wielding power without being corrupted by it. So a lot of lefties respond to this by, you guessed it, avoiding situations that put them in positions of power because they think somehow that it's wrong to use it, which leaves us at a distinct disadvantage. And I really, really liked your term that you came up with, Christoph, post-liberalism, because mm -hmm. I cannot call myself a progressive because of this problem. Mm -hmm. and, and so we should really try to claim that term and do something with it because right-wingers, they do not hesitate to use their power whenever it suits them. The classic example of this is, of course, the Senate filibuster that requires 60 votes to bring a bill to the floor for a vote. I mean, Mitch McConnell was able to basically sabotage the entire Obama presidency using this tool. Now, the filibuster isn't the best example of Republican abuse of power because Democrats can and do also use the filibuster to their advantage. But the best example in recent years has been the Republican double standard on Supreme Court appointments. Oh, We've talked about this until, yeah. we're, until we're blue in the face, but Merrick Garland did not get a hearing. 
And he was nominated in March of 2016, which is eight months before the election. And I frankly think Obama, that was one of the major failings of his presidency is that he didn't make, he should have stopped the country to get that Supreme Court seat. And um, he didn't. And of course, that seat was left open to be filled by Trump. In a classic abuse of their power, Republicans rammed through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett on October 27th, 2020. And this just happened days before the election of President Biden. People had already voted when that happened. And yeah. it was a despicable abuse of power, one of the most egregious, though certainly only one of hundreds of examples in, in recent history. So even the U.S. Constitution is a document that justifies a substantial abuse of power. That's a topic for another day. But I think what you're trying to get at here, Joe, is the age old question of how Democrats can retain their ethics and still be able to fight these types of abuses. Yes. We're, we're terrible at playing this kind of political hardball. And actually, I think that's an ethical failing on the part of Democrats. We often tend to think that we shouldn't get our hands dirty by, for example, using gerrymandering to the fullest when we're in power. In fact, a couple of my political friends who run another podcast called Brain Trust Live, they made this exact point about a week ago on their show, and they were calling for Democrats to unilaterally end gerrymandering, even if Republicans didn't. And I don't see how we could be saying things like that when the stakes are this high right now. Their point was, well, there's more Democrats, so we don't need to gerrymander. Maybe. Okay. But are we willing to reduce our margins of victory and possibly lose? I don't think we can take those kind of risks right now until we get our hands firmly back on the reins of power in this country, or at least until we can ban gerrymandering by everyone. Bottom line, I'll, and then I'll shut up, is that Democrats need to put amassing political power first on their agenda or get used to continuing to lose everything. If we have to gerrymander our way to taking over a state legislature, then let's fucking get it done. We need every state. No more unilateral disarmament in the face of Republican bad faith and political terrorism. The other side is playing for keeps, and the only way we win is if the good guys are better at wielding power than the bad guys. It's a bit of a contradiction, a lot like the paradox of tolerance in a way. We can't afford to be rubes, and we can't afford to be idealists. We have to be sophisticated and Machiavellian, much as a lot of lefties don't want to hear it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right, Sean. And I think the real challenge here, and this is what I'm really think talking about when I'm talking about this about post-liberalism, right, mm -hmm. is finding a balance between maintaining our ethics this is what one of the themes of the show it feels like right maintaining our our commitment to reducing human suffering while being willing to play hardball be willing to get into the knife fight in a fucking phone booth right because that is where we are and all growing up i watched 80s and the 90s and and the 2000s i watched democrats just seed ground and mm -hmm. see ground and say, look, if we show them how ethical we are, they'll have to be ethical. And every time the right says, thank you very much. Now, what else do you have to give me? <laughs> never they works. That never, no. ever works. And I think what you said, Sean, was is so, so important right there. And that is, if we really do care about these ethics, then we have to be willing to do sometimes the dirty work that it takes us to get there. And again, find a way to do that without compromising our deepest held beliefs, right? And so that is a real challenge. That's a real challenge. I think in my mind, Clinton 
would, uh, this is like the Clinton versus Bernie Sanders sort of, or at least in terms of the followers. Again, this gets back to these purity ethics, this idea that like anyone who's on the take from those corporations can't fight corporations, right? Or like you said, let's just get rid of gerrymandering altogether. And again, it's the wrong approach. And this is what I keep talking about, this post-liberal idea. We have to be a new kind of liberal. We have to be, or we will lose. We are fucking losing. We, we, we will lose. We have lost. We are in the process of losing. We are now mm-hmm. just trying to even get back on the fucking field. That's what we're talking yeah. about here. So let's do something different. We must do something different. Or all the things we talk about on the show all the time, the theocracy, we are living that. And, and I'll say this, and then I'll shut up. And that is that so often people think that totalitarianism or theocracy just shows up one day, right? You just open the window one day and there's jackboots on the streets goose-stepping, right? Like, no, that's not how it works. It happens slowly, drip by drip, and you don't even fucking notice. And then one day you really do wake up and you can't vote, right? And and by the way, by the time you get to that point, most of the populace doesn't even care about voting anymore, right? They're just caring about trying to survive and not get swooped up by secret police or whatever the hell else is going on. But that doesn't happen overnight is the point. It happens slowly. It happens over time. And it's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, both of you made some very salient points here. And with all of that in mind, let's get to the news item itself. I know this was going to be circuitous, but sometimes it (laughs) needs to be, right? We have to frame the question and we have to bring out what's important. And power is very important. It is so critical that the left comes to really understand it better. I sorely agree with both of you. We have a lot of work ahead of us. And so with that in mind, let's talk about the uh, transgender issue here. Many states have recently passed anti-transgender laws meant to suppress the rights and dignity of that very vulnerable community. Arkansas lawmakers have approved a ban on gender-affirming health care for transgender children. Several states, including Florida, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee, and more, have enacted measures prohibiting trans girls and women from competing in school sport teams consistent with their gender. Conservative legislatures have introduced more than 80 bills restricting trans rights in the U.S. so far this year. Science is once again being either ignored or distorted in order to feed the narrative that transgender identity is unnatural, an example of cultural excessiveness, and you've heard it all, right? Mm. The same language used to stop universal suffrage a century ago, interracial marriage, gay marriage, and so on. That doesn't seem to matter. The sad fact is, as attested by all these ugly laws, that this rhetoric works. The issue of transgender rights is the tip of the social justice spear, as I mentioned earlier. As such, the political will to procure these rights is still relatively weak, perhaps like the rights of homosexuals before the 1990s. And so we must think about power here as well. How do we build that power? Christoph and Sean, how should we approach the transgender rights challenge? In particular, how do we balance that difficult equation about ethics and power we all have been talking about here? Yeah, great question. Great question, Joe. And and such an important topic. And the thing that jumped into my mind right away as you were talking was this issue, right? Like how many Republican conservative politicians 
do you think have or do still sleep with transgender sex workers? I bet you it's probably <laughs> higher than you think. And also because because I remember when they passed the bathroom bill uh, in, mm. in North Carolina, I remember that Pornhub came out and they said, like, look, huh, we can tell you that there are plenty of people who are really into transgender women in North Carolina. Whatever they say, the number is higher than mm. you think. Right. And so what I'm saying here is getting back to the power issue. A lot of this is just a cynical play for power. They know that transgender bathroom issues like just fire up their base and they really couldn't care less one way or the other. I mean, I don't think that Ted Cruz really cares about transgender bathrooms at all. Like, I, 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 don't, I genuinely do not think that Mr. McConnell, I think you couldn't possibly care less about what transgender people are doing or not doing. In fact, if no. a transgender person showed up tomorrow and said, I will vote for you. I'm a senator and I'll vote for you. He'd shrug his shoulder and say, great, you're on board. Like, that's it. So it really is purely a wedge issue now. Yeah, the rank and file conservative, it very much is a moral issue, right? They have been fired up and told that this is an ethical issue, a moral issue that and they've tied it in somehow to their cultural identity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is that. And how do we fight this? Right. How do we fight this? This is a big problem with the structural issues that we have on the left. We are at a, a huge mm. structural disadvantage. We talk about this on the show all the time, obviously. We talk about the filibuster. We talk about the entire concept of the Senate, right? On and on. And then the gerrymandering and then the voter suppression and the things that we... So how do you solve these problems? I think you said earlier in the show, Joe, is that we have to change political opinion enough to overwhelm those structural disadvantages. How do you do that? I, I don't have a lot of answers to this, but I think the media has a, a big part to play here. And I don't mean print media or, or news. What I mean is movies and TV shows. Mm. The reason why people yeah. are okay with gay people now is will and grace, right? These shows, like, why are people now have a different idea of African-Americans, right? The Cosby show, these shows were critical because they bypassed those cultural blockers, right? You know, you're not going to reach right-wing evangelicals because they don't watch TV specifically because they don't want their kids to see this stuff. But most rank and file people have queer eye for the, for the straight guy. I remember my old boss, he was a landscaper, conservative as all hell, Republicans through and through, but he loved queer eye for the fucking straight guy. And this chipped away at yeah. his biases. And so I think like that's how you do an end run around this because we don't have the power to just like to just jam it down people's throats. We just don't. Yeah. And yeah. well, I wanted to point out, and this is something to celebrate this Pride Month, is that the acceptance of gay marriage nationally is at a record high. It's like 70%. It's insane. And, and, and it's including a majority of Republicans now. Okay. So what you're saying is very true. And I just wanted to pick up a little bit also on what you said, Christoph, about mm. the just the level of cynicism about how mm. these, these guys really couldn't care less Not at about all. sexuality. Because look, there are a lot of closeted people who are or not or gay, who like trans sex workers, like you said. Mm -hmm. And it's just, they also know that if the, that if abortion is banned, that their mistresses are going to be able to get abortions. Like this isn't exactly. going to affect them. So they're just, this is just a route to power. And I think in terms of that, you know, we've really said a lot, we have to do what we have to do, even if that means fighting dirty. There's absolutely nothing I wouldn't do, no line I wouldn't cross personally to support transgender rights. Mm. And that's that's mm. just a fact. And I don't think that's being unethical. I think that is just saying, no, I'm willing to put my ethics first. And mm -hmm. you know, in terms of our communication, what we really need to do with this whole transgender thing is to stress the science. 
Yeah. Gender mm-hmm. is not a Great concrete idea. binary. It's it's like, okay, this is one area where I've gotten a lot of flack on social media from people saying, oh, you liberals are the anti-science party when it comes to transgender. And it is one of the most pernicious and persistent myths that we actually don't accept the science. And there's a really great post because I didn't know a lot of this stuff and it really needs to be communicated because a lot of people don't. And that is the laying out of how all the different ways people can be on a spectrum between strictly male and strictly female. Mm -hmm. And I I think we should put a link to this post in our show notes. I'm going to fact check it, make sure it's all because this is just a raw social media post. But the bottom line is, is that you know, we used to think that gender was all about X and Y chromosomes, and, and it's not actually about anything concrete like that. It's about gene expression. And there's so many complexities to human genetics that almost no one is strictly male or female. And exactly. what's particularly interesting that's in this post is uh, some of the things that happen to us in utero during pregnancy mm. uh, with the mother's hormones that can have strong impacts on a person's gender spectrum for life. So fascinating. We just have to keep pushing the science and it's an uphill battle because as we know, we're not just fighting about science. We're fighting one of the bedrock categories of hierarchy. Mm, Gender hierarchy, it's one of the most entrenched hierarchies of all. And that's going to make transgender rights a contentious issue for some time to come, no matter what we do. Great point. Yeah. And of course, you can add to it the science of anthropology, the surveying a culture throughout history, hundreds and thousands of cultures, and you see many, many examples of different expressions of gender, Mm -hmm. different categories of gender, different numbers of genders across the world and across time. That's so so important, Joe, because people act as if it's like some sort of cultural eccentricity of the 20th century. No, not at all. People and trans people forever. So th- that argument just dies on the vine. Like, no, it has nothing to do with the, the the moral decadence of the 1960s or whatever. Like, no, <laughs> of course not. Ridiculous. Bad faith too. Just fucking bad faith. Well, and you can't discount the fact, okay, that Christianity is just ass deep in all of this. I mean, oh, oh the, yes. The oh, Christ- big time. White Christian nationalism is just threatened on every level by transgender rights. Definitely. Good point. We could do a whole show on that. <laughs> we should. Yeah. Anyway, let's go ahead and tackle our first topic for the show, which is peopling of the world. Let's start with a quick overview of the history of population growth. It actually is a segue from our previous conversation about transgender rights. There's a, it really speaks to diversity. Uh, but let's first start with looking at the world population, what it looks like today. We'll touch on a debate about overpopulation. I don't know if some of you have heard of the Neo-Malthusian versus Cornucopian debates. Mm-hmm. So the former are those who believe that humans cannot keep up with a growing resources crisis, and those who feel that human advancement will outpace the needs of a growing population are the latter. So on the other, on, in other words, uh, Neo-Malthusians believe we're going to head into a resource crisis because we cannot keep up with growing populations. And the Cornucopians believe that, yes, we can. <laughs> we'll be fine. <laughs> right? Technology will deal with it. And so don't worry about it. And it's a huge topic. And so I want to focus on it by using this lifeboat metaphor that comes out in this topic. Some mm-hmm. of you may have heard of it already. So the ecologist Garrett Harding published an article in the late 60s called The Tragedy of the Commons. His ideas helped propel the world into development strategies. That was one of the really important aspects of that article. But he also began to talk about 
this lifeboat metaphor. Harding coined that metaphor as a good way to think about this conversation. And we want to make it about ethics here as well. And I think that fits in to our discussion in general. It not just be descriptive, but also be mindful of our morals. Harding described a lifeboat with 50 people and room for 10 more. The lifeboat is in an ocean surrounded by 100 swimmers. Which swimmers should be taken aboard? That's the ethical dilemma that he's trying to pose here. The lifeboat is the rich nation, and the swimmers are the people from poor nations. Obstensibly, the lifeboat has limited resources, in this case, limited space. It only can fit 10 more. Is the earth the same? So guys, what's your take on this? We have a lot to talk about how all this fits in with human diversity, but just in terms of numbers at first, is this analogy accurate or at least useful in some ways? Really, I'm asking, do we have a population crisis? Well, I mean, my answer to this question is that it's a kind of a false choice, right? Like you don't, those three options are not necessarily all the options, right? I mean, I do think that you get your way out of this by running a civilization in a way that's sustainable. I know, Sean, you're going to talk a little bit about that. I think, though, that what jumps in my mind here when facing this crisis, and it is a version of the trolley problem, is Picard, another Star Trek reference. I'm reading a Star Trek book that takes place between the end of the Next Generation movies and before Picard starts. It's basically like a prequel to Picard. And, and I won't give away any details, but the bottom line is that it sort of chronicles, look, Picard uh, getting the ships built and, and going and trying to evacuate Romulans and all this sort of stuff. And I was struck and reminded of the ethics of Picard, right? He keeps saying over and over again, the goal has to be to preserve life. And that sounds very right wing. But basically, from my perspective, it's I would say it as the goal must be to reduce suffering. That must be the overarching goal. And this is very Picardian, and that is to be very broad and forward-looking about what that means. That might mean making really difficult choices. Um, and go to the other end of the spectrum, there's an episode of The Expanse where they have this boat and it can only hold X number of people. They won't have enough air. And so they have to make these really fucking difficult choices. They take the young people, they leave the unfirm, they leave the old to die. And they know that. They know those people are going to die. They're going to suffocate. And they make this choice. And so look, I think that Progress sometimes requires us to make these unbelievably difficult choices, um, but I think we ought to hold to our ethics of reducing human suffering as we think about these choices. I'm, I'm happy I'm not a kind of guy who has to make those kinds of choices because <laughs> yeah. holy shit, like having yeah. to make those kinds of choices for a living, that is brutal. Yeah. Well, that scene in the uh, expanse was just gut wrenching. It was uh, powerful. <laughs> it was very, very powerful. And I'm glad you brought it up because I forgot about it when I was writing I teared up, literally. I like teared up because it was such a powerful interaction between the big belter that set, you know, I was just like, yo, this show is off the fucking hook. This is no, insane. Was. Like the ethical dilemma there is just like gut-wrenching. Yeah, it's talking real shit, as uh, Daryl says. <laughs> um, we haven't discussed really population much at all yet on the Radical Secular in our, the entire last year. Um, and maybe there's a reason for that because the subject is it's near the top of my list of the most demagogued subjects of all. And the problem we have isn't really a population problem at all. 
and, and this is where this battle between the, the Neo-Malthusians and the Cornucopians is sort of a false choice, like you mentioned, Christoph, because our problem is footprint. And mm. I want to explain what I mean when I say that. Each person has a resource use and pollution footprint, which is largely based on the policies of the government and the nation where they live. So, for example, an American might have five times or potentially much more than five times the footprint of someone who lives in, say, Vietnam or Pakistan. A person living in Pakistan has an ecological footprint that's about 15 times smaller than your average American. Now, mm -hmm. in, a, in a fossil fueled world where nearly every part of the economy is run on fossil fuels, per capita ecological footprint correlates almost directly with per capita income. So, for example, Pakistan's per capita income is $4,800 per year, while the U.S. per capita income is about $66,000 per year, almost a direct correlation to the difference in footprint. So what this means yep. is that when we come to our trolley problem or the life raft problem is that we actually don't have to let people either get in the raft or drown. We have several mm -hmm. other much better options where no one has to die. Uh, option one, we can limit consumption and ecological footprint by law. In other words, we could set a ceiling every year as to what kind of total manufacturing we're going to allow in the world, and everyone has to live under that ceiling, basically rationing. This would require much of the world to reduce its economy to the level of Pakistan's. Not really desirable, but would we rather just kill people? That's the real trolley problem, okay? Because <laughs> this is what we're doing now. We're setting conditions up to kill people. So option two is we can decarbonize voluntarily, move toward a circular, sustainable economy, which will reduce everyone's footprint, uh, theoretically, without having to give up anything. But this is also referred to as decoupling an economy from its carbon emissions. In other words, you can still have economic growth even as emissions decline. And this is obviously far preferable to rationing. But for the reasons I discussed before of bargain hunting and short-term thinking, it's politically extremely difficult. Option three, we can allow people to continue consuming as much as they want, despite the carbon emissions, but we would impose a carbon tax that would either partially or completely pay the cost of mitigating those emissions. The tax would generate a lot of revenue that would pay for new technology and new manufacturing methods that would drive down emissions. Eventually, emissions would be eliminated and along with them, the tax. Still, it's politically difficult, but this proposal, interestingly enough, has garnered some support among conservatives as the most market-friendly approach. Still a very heavy political lift because many industries would be changed or eliminated and they're fighting tooth and nail to survive. So the answer to your initial question about population is no, we absolutely don't have a population problem and no one has to die. Uh, we do, however, have a massive political problem such that in practice, it's possible people will end up dying by the hundreds of millions or even possibly billions if we fail to implement the much needed political changes. So we've got to do either option one, two, or three. We don't have a choice. <laughs> I just want to jump in real quick before we move on. And and I want to just throw this idea into the bucket of potential post-liberalism ideas. And that is really stressing these market-based approaches. The market, that word gets leftists and hardcore liberals all panties in a bunch and boxers in a bunch. It really does. It's like, oh God, we can't have any, as if that, as if the market is somehow inherently bad. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's so important. First of all, we need consensus because if that gets Republicans on board, great. Yes, moderate Republicans, right? 
And I think that we need to start thinking of, I think those kinds of strategies are realistic to the business community. A lot of the business community people, they're like, yeah, sure. If they just follow the incentives. So if you create a world in which they can continue to make money and also fix the climate, they will happily do that. And this also kind of goes back to my demonizing thing. Let's not make those corporate guys out to be literal devils that we hate and they're just the worst people, right? No. And even if they are, we still have to find a way to work with them. We have to. Obviously, we've demonstrated ourselves as liberals as not having enough power. So these are the kind of decisions we have to make in the post-liberalism agenda. Yeah, it's very much like what you said about Israel on your show last week, where you were right. talking about you can't have peace if you don't bring Israel on board. And this is the same thing here. We can't fix the climate if we don't bring corporations on board. That's exactly right. That is just the world we live in. We can pretend we live in another world, but that's not true. This is the world we live in, liberals. This is the world we live in. This is the sausage we have to stuff into fucking intestines. We have to do it. We got to do it. We got to do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you guys challenged the question because I just want to take a little bit of a detour here and I want to talk about discourse. And the question was framed in the 1960s and 70s. And we've learned so much since then. So much about ecological sustainability, about new technologies, about how to reshape the systems that we have to be able to be uh, more sustainable. And yet the question still persists. The discourse is still controlled by this question. So this is one way we take back the discourse by challenging these questions. So I'm really glad you guys did it. The reason why I posed it is because it is still, you know, a question that drives a lot of people. Mm -hmm. it, it shouldn't be, but it is. Well, they'd rather kill people than make changes is what it comes down to. Yeah, if you ever hear somebody, right. If you hear somebody ranting about population, oh, our population is too high. What they really mean is too many people are competing with me for resources and I don't want to give them up. So you can die. Yeah. Well, I think sadly <laughs> you're right. I really I think do. That's absolutely right. I mean, I am floored sometimes when I talk to conservatives, but I don't really talk to conservatives. When I hear what conservatives <laughs> say, like when they say what they're like, they conveniently leave out where they say like the people at the border, let's say, let's just use that, right? Like the unaccompanied minors, right? They come to the United States. The question is, what do we do with them? And their answer is, well, their parents shouldn't have sent them. And it's like, wait, that doesn't <laughs> no. answer the question. No, that doesn't answer the question. Yes, maybe they shouldn't have. And we can have a debate about that. But wait, you are saying you're okay with this person like dying? Like, and their answer is, they, first of all, they haven't really thought about it, which is really what it is. But mm -hmm. second of all, if you make them think about it, their answer would be, yeah. And that well, is like, Wow, that is an astonishing admission when you sort of when you press people on what the uh, practical consequences of their beliefs are. We talk about that. Yeah. On this. Well, it, yes. look, it goes this goes back to the 2010 and 2012 elections when there was that big rebellion against Obamacare and there was a debate and there was a yeah, question asked go. about no. should we what if somebody doesn't have insurance? Should we let them die? And you hear people in the audience screaming out, yeah, let them die. There, the, every aspect of conservatism has come down to this. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I also want to talk about the people in the environmental movement who think that all humans should die. They think the earth would be better off without us. <laughs> right, and there's a, right, there's, right, a right. there's a dark green strain in the environmental movement that is actually very much like conservatives in, in this way. Sure. That's interesting. Good point. Yeah. And again, we're talking about ethics here, right? What's really important. And I think to your point, Christoph, we made earlier about corporations. I think you're right for the most part, although mm -hmm. I would say that you ha we have to discriminate mm -hmm. between corporations that are very much the aggressors here and For those sure. who are not. Because I mean- For sure. Gas and oil are, industry. Yeah. 
That's, I, mean, I think that's on. critically important to do. There are many corporations that really don't care that we are a fossil economy. We just are, and they just take mm -hmm. advantage of it. But they'd be perfectly fine <laughs> to be living in a green economy. But then, right. then there are that's others right. who have spent the last century defending this regime. Right? That's yeah. right. And, then and the healthcare so, industry, right? Healthcare yeah, industry same, is in the same, same boat. There. The same, same boat. They're there. literally making money off of people's suffering. Like that is their entire business model, right? So it's like- yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there are ways, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but there are ways, like for example, at a recent shareholder meeting, Exxon was, right. was there was a takeover that, that happened right. and, and a bunch of green new directors got elected who are going to change Exxon's business model and they won that fight. So there are ways to wield power other than government. Right, right. Yeah, even with fossil fuel companies now, you're seeing some progress, which is- They're seeing the writing on the wall. Yeah. I mean, they may have destroyed the fucking planet over the last 30 years denying it, but look, they see the writing on the wall now. Yeah. Well, I'm still pretty skeptical, but we'll see. I'm willing <laughs> to believe it when I see it. Yeah, I, I hear you. Oil has been such a powerful force on this planet. Oh my God. Just in the, you, you can't underestimate how much. And- Let's see if there is actually an honest, good faith effort to change. Yeah, I hope I, you're right. I, 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 I'm already completely throwing my entire theory out of the window now. <laughs> no, I mean, this takeover at Exxon really did happen. And it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, that's a real it was, thing. It was large investment companies and, and, and funds that came in and they, did a, they fought a proxy war and they won. Right. So liberals, I think a lot of folks don't understand a lot of times how corporations work. I mean, theoretically, it is a public corporation, at least, has shareholders, is a democracy. You could lobby groups of shareholders to band together and overwhelm a, a powerful interest of with shareholders. So theoretically, there is room for democracy. Maybe this is a, a place where you legislate better rules around corporations and how corporations operate so that it does become a little bit more democratic. So you get another Exxon perhaps down the road where you get enough people together. And the, then the other thing too, is that like this just goes to show how important it is just to persuade people with our ideas, right? Because you persuade these powerful people up there and you get a situation where a piece of Exxon is thinking a little bit differently. That's very valuable. And I think we as liberals, my point is we shouldn't cede this ground. We shouldn't cede any ground, just like we were able to win in Georgia, right? We can win in corporations. We need to be able to talk about that stuff. We need to be able to talk about power. We need to be able to talk about corporations. We need to be able to talk about the private sector and how that can work for us. We need to be able to be fighting on all fronts and not cede the ground anywhere because we've done that so often. And I keep saying this, we are not losing. We have lost yeah. past tense. Now we need to get back into the game. Well, and I just want to give a shout out here. I think it's really important to 350.org and Bill McKibben and also to Extinction Rebellion. Mm -hmm. These two organizations have done more to raise the awareness in the corporate world because mm -hmm. they did exactly that. They went after investors. They went after big investors, mm -hmm. institutional investors, yep. sovereign wealth funds, and all of these things. And they changed hearts and minds. And that yeah. is now causing real change. Yeah, it's important to, uh, to embrace the good news as well. <laughs> Fair it really enough. is. And there is some good news here for sure. There's momentum that it, it's looking hopeful. And thank goodness that it is because, I mean, the, the issue, as we said before, is, is quite stark. Well, we have so much more to talk about, and we'll be doing that in the next show. If you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out theradicalsecular.com, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And if you're into reading, check out the blog at theradicalsecular.com. 
I'm Joe Kipinti. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. You've been listening to the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. For full video episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel.